This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. There is a biblical imperative to be holy, but how should we think about it? Is it a burden or a joy? or both. Some reject the necessity of holiness, and others have set a scheme whereby our standing before God is dependent on our personal holiness. The Rev. Dr. Howell Jones is Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. This is his 50th anniversary of his ordination to gospel ministry. So he's been thinking about these issues for a while, and he's here to help us work through them today. He served as principal of the London Theological Seminary and as co-chair of the Westminster Fellowship of Ministers, succeeding Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's authored several books, which are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Howell, and welcome back to Office Hours. Many thanks, Scott. Congratulations on your 50th anniversary. It's a remarkable thing to think about being ordained to pastoral ministry for 50 years. Just to put things in context, I was two when you were ordained, and it was a very different world. Do you remember, for example, whether President Kennedy was still alive when you were ordained? Was it before or after the assassination? It was just before the assassination, if it were later than September. When you were ordained, we had not yet gone to the moon. When you were ordained, the Vietnam conflict was a police action that was just beginning. The Americans had just taken over for the French. How were things in the UK in 1963 for you? Well, I suppose the church still had a fairly secure place in the regard of the people, and that is not just the Church of England, but the nonconformist denominations too. However, numbers of those attending worship regularly morning and evening were showing some decline, and the effects of the Second World War were beginning to be felt in families and by a rising generation. So it was a challenging time, and liberalism and ecumenism. Well, liberalism was still respected. Ecumenism was still regarded as the answer to the weakness and the dividedness of the visible church. But by that time, there had been a refreshing, a reviving of both saving truth and the kind of godly life that was the result of it in the nonconformist denominations in Wales, where I served. What was happening in the banner of truth world? Where was that movement in 1963? 
it had just begun in the late 50s, and there was a growing number of men in the ministry who were appreciating the literature that was being produced, and conferences were being increasingly well attended. So that was a revival, really, of soteriological Calvinism, and that has continued. How do you think things have changed since you began your pastoral ministry? In other words, as you think about standing in the pulpit and announcing the Word of God to a congregation, you must have had a certain set of concerns in your mind and on your heart in 1963, and now, as you do it, do you have the same concerns, or how have they changed? They've been added to. The same concerns by God's grace, yes. People needed to know the way of salvation because though they attended church, liberalism had been preached for years, and generally they would never claim to know anything about assurance of faith, nor would they endorse cardinal doctrines such as the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his virginal conception. The resurrection, his resurrection was still regarded, but whether as highly as it ought to have been is another matter. So when you say liberalism, you don't mean simply tolerance of a variety of points of view, although that might be included when you, when we say theological liberalism, but that's really code for a denial of, as you say, cardinal doctrines. And by cardinal, you mean you're referring to the color red, those things that are absolutely essential to the Christian faith. And so people were denying the truth of Scripture. They were denying the historicity of the resurrection, denying the existence or the uniqueness of Christ as Savior. That's what you have in mind? Anti-supernaturalism was the main emphasis. And therefore, if something could be reduced to acceptability and yet acknowledged verbally so that its content had been evacuated, the language still being used, and people didn't realize what was happening. So people were sitting in pews, and they were hearing ministers use traditional language, but the meaning of the language had been changed. And so slowly over time, the content of the faith was being emptied and replaced with something else. Correct, yes. Any use of the law of God, which I imagine we'll get onto in a little while, but any use of the law of God with regard either to those outside the church and also with regard to those within was remarkably absent. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And you used a term earlier, ecumenism. What do you mean by that? The movement in the 20th century which began by regarding the dividedness of the church as a hindrance to the effective spread of the gospel, going back to 1910 and Edinburgh, and a commitment, therefore, to address that internal dividedness and pursue a reunification for the sake of evangelism or mission. That would have been the case, I think, up until roughly the end of the Second World War, when the World Council of Churches, per se, came into being in 1948. Since then, of course, there has been a change which emphasizes not so much what God does through the church, but what he is doing in the world which the church needs to recognize and associate with his direct activity in the world, sociopolitically, religiously, and for the church to recognize that this is something which she has to take on board and relate to as being equally valid in the presentation of the Christian faith. So a kind of natural revelation comes to equality with special revelation and particularly with the saving revelation of God in Christ, and eventually, in at least liberal ecumenism, comes to marginalize the special, saving, unique work of Christ. Oh, indeed. 
And with the Roman Catholic Church on the sideline, I think that she still is not a full member of the World Council, but the Eastern Orthodox are. With Rome on the on the sidelines, so to speak, but affirming the Virgin Mary as co-mediatrix and so on and prayers to the saints and the uniqueness of Jesus as mediator is directly challenged and then along with that the pluralism that is rampant in society and in churches means that other religions have to be accepted as valid and even those who are devoted in good conscience are regarded as anonymous Christians or pagan saints as the terminology goes. So ecumenism morphs into universalism. At that point, we're really not even talking about variations of Christian teaching, but now a synthesis of Christian teaching with non-Christian teaching. And so we really have, in that case, lost the uniqueness of Christ as the Savior. Yes. The latest example, of course, is Pope Francis saying that atheists will be found in heaven because everyone has a conscience. God is a God of love, and therefore to live up to one's conscience means that all will be well in the end. Of course, the church can do things better if you just give it the opportunity. The Roman church, <laughs> that is. Sort of a second blessing of theology within a Roman context. Yes. So, which is a remarkable thing, but it's actually quite faithful to at least some of the strains of teaching present in Vatican II. So, if the listener is tempted to turn to Rome to find authentic, traditional, historic, faithful, confessional Christianity, one might want to take a close look at the current occupant of the Vatican before one decides that, well, this is where the truth lies. This is where historic Christianity lies. Indeed. All right. So you've been at this for 50 years. You were ordained to gospel ministry, to stand in the pulpit and to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to proclaim the law and the gospel. And you've done it your entire ministry, depending on the Holy Spirit, with the goal that what? What did you hope to have happen as a consequence of the foolishness of preaching? That those who had not understood the gospel would repent, would and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the congregations I served would be strengthened in their commitment to that and in their making known of it in the community, but also that between individual churches that upheld these truths, there would be a greater relationship of mutual love and regard and cooperation in not just making known the gospel, but cooperation in maintaining maintaining it so that from the very beginning, given the presence of ignorance and rank heresy in the denomination that I served, which was being protected, the need for discipline was prominent in my thinking. So that every time you step into the pulpit, you really are dependent on the Holy Spirit, that without the operation of the Spirit ahead of you, in the midst of the event of preaching, and afterwards, without that, what you're doing in the pulpit is ultimately fruitless. That was always the case to some degree, I hope. Fifty years is a long time. I sought to make that a daily reminder. However, if one had a sermon with a good structure, and structures are important, and I've often been thankful for it the older I get, the temptation to trust in the structure for the kind of effectiveness that you describe, I think, was something that I often succumbed to. Mm. Occasionally, you come up with an outline, you think, well, this will preach, and we forget how utterly dependent, however clever the outline may be, that without the same Holy Spirit who hovered over the face of the deep and who was poured out on the church at Pentecost and who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, without his work, 
all of this is nothing, right? It's like wind on water. So we're talking about sanctification this season in office hours, and we want to focus now on the necessity of sanctification. What does it mean to talk about the necessity of sanctification? For example, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as we saw in the introduction, has these words, be holy. And we are to be holy because the Lord who redeemed us is holy. And one of the goals of our preaching is that the Lord would not only bring the dead to life, but also to sanctify them. So how should we think and talk about the necessity of sanctification? You know, some have turned it into an imperative and made it depressing. Others have made it a condition of acceptance with God. That is our personal, actual holiness. As you think about the necessity of holiness, as Peter speaks there, how do you think about that and how do you try to communicate that to Christians? Well, I think of it as the inevitable consequence of the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing people to repentance and faith. And When it becomes a burden to people, somehow either they have lost sight of the gospel or the ministry under which they sit hasn't been focusing primarily upon it. Leviticus, as you've referred to it, is God saying to his redeemed people, Be holy, for I am holy. One Peter quotes specifically, as it is written, he says, he quotes specifically that command with regard to the new covenant. So the new covenant in no way underestimates or minimizes the significance. On the contrary, it enhances it and increases it because now there's this clear manifestation of the redeeming love of God in the gospel. So that would be the context and the basis for this emphasis on sanctification being something that is obligatory, commanded. There is in evangelical and Reformed circles, as you may know, a controversy about how we ought to speak about these things. And there is a school that says that we need to be gospel-centered, and no one would dispute that. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then there is sometimes a reaction to that, a concern that, well, you've so focused on the objective that you've lost the subjective. Now, not picking sides here for the purpose of the question or the discussion, but in your own preaching and teaching, as you've counseled with people and exposited the Word and announced it from the pulpit, how have you sought to relate the objective accomplishment of redemption with the subjective consequences? You started on that earlier, so I guess I'm asking you to elaborate. I know of these alternatives and recognize that there are grounds for them. Sadly, those grounds exist. They shouldn't. Though it isn't easy to maintain and demonstrate the connection between the fact that redemption is accomplished and nothing that the human subject, let's say, the sinner coming to faith or the believer in the course of his life, nothing that he or she can do should be conceived of as in any way adding to what Christ has done. He has secured acceptance with God, and he has secured the ultimate glorification of his people, which is the finale of sanctification. That, however, doesn't mean that there is no need to emphasize that those who do know him should make it their earnest aim, their daily pursuit, to become more holy before God, more like Jesus Christ. And the use, therefore, of seeing that, and recalling the King James Version, prepositional phrases and terms like seeing that, or, or therefore, you are no longer, now you are. Those kinds of terms, at one and the same time, preserve 
the uniqueness of an accomplished redemption and also emphasize the kind of life that arises out of that great change. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the heart and minds of God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Pastors can sometimes be frustrated. You know, they look out at their congregations and they don't see what they hope to see, what they pray for, what they want to see. And they can sometimes give in to the temptation to sort of push people to holiness by cracking the whip, by, in a sense, sidelining the good news and emphasizing the necessity and the demands, the requirement. I take it that's probably not what we want to encourage people to do, but what are some of the reasons that a Christian ought to be attracted to holiness, to put it in the old-fashioned language, mortification, dying to sin and self, and vivification, the being made alive by the Spirit in Christ? Well, the relationship in which we now are through faith in Christ has a dimension which relates to God as our Heavenly Father and to the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying or an aspect of the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying and their granting the Holy Spirit to believers. Now, if we were to disconnect a pursuit of holiness from these three great realities, then it would be crippling, it would be burdensome, it would indeed be back under the law. But because it is not just a command that we read in Scripture, but our Heavenly Father's purpose for us. Jesus Christ died to redeem a people spotless from all iniquity. The Holy Spirit yearns over his people to make them like Jesus Christ. All these are should be powerful, unanswerable reasons, as you put it, to motivate a Christian towards holiness, in addition to which there is the fact that he or she is a new creation. And however much we have to comp- with the remains of sin, there is a desire to be holy now given to us. You just said something that I think bears further meditation, and that is you essentially said that sanctification is a Trinitarian act. Mm. That's huge, because I don't think that we normally think of sanctification in those terms. 
and you started with the Father. So let's go back and, as they say, unpack that and walk through that. The Father, you were indicating, is sanctifying and drawing us and wanting us to be holy, to be conformed to Him. Help us think a little bit more about that, if you can. Well, He wants us to be like Him because He is nothing but good. He is righteous. He is true. There is nothing deceptive, nothing contradictory about him. He is separate from everything that has come into being as a result of Satan's activity, both in the heavenlies and on earth. Part of what's meant by his holiness is that he is separate. And so for him not to want his children to be separate is a contradiction of his own nature. Every father, even every human father, wants a child to be somewhat like him, sin apart. How much more? Hmm. So we ought to think of the Father as desiring our sanctification, not as a kind of a punishment, but as a desire for our well-being and our blessing. Oh, indeed. And that is why he sent his Son. And that is why the Spirit comes at their behest. His decree at the beginning was that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And often when people think of command, they think of law and they don't think of love. So to relate the command to the Father who has eternally loved us should have some effect upon that failure to think. And the Son is the preeminent manifestation of that love. So he came to redeem us, not only that we would be saved, but that we would also be sanctified. And then the Holy Spirit, who, and we'll talk about this more further on, the Holy Spirit came that we might be sanctified. In other words, he is the power of the Father and the Son, in the sanctifying of the believer. We're going to talk about that more in some detail here. Let me ask you, you know, as we've been sort of thinking about your ministry and your thinking about sanctification over these years, what are some of the resources that you have found valuable? Some of the books, writings, are there particular books that have helped you to think about sanctification? Okay. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, for one. I read that every year subsequent to my ordination. And then, as we mentioned the Banner of Truth, John Owen on communion with the Father and the Son and the mortification, sin and mortification, those. And then also those biographies like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Brainerd, who strove to be holy, whatever we might want to say by way of caveat, that striving is, of course, an indication of new life and sanctification, though a Trinitarian work is not a work apart from us. There is cooperation between the believer and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the work. So exertion and energy, striving are all part of it. We're not blocks of wood in the process of sanctification. What is it about Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress that caused you to read it and reread it again and again. What drew you back to it? It's graphic nature. I wouldn't deduce doctrine from every page of it, (laughs) but here was someone who was given to think of the reality of life as a pilgrimage with a clear destination, with definite foes, and Christian and hopeful and faithful, different kinds of Christians, all on this path, individually and helping each other and so on. And that kind of picture spoke to me, I suppose, You know, Welshmen are a bit imaginative as well as given to exaggeration, and it spoke to me, and I enjoyed it. You have the soul of a poet. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The reading of John Owen is a great thing, but for late modern readers, he can be a real challenge because his sentences are very Latinate, which means they're long and they have subordinate clauses. And in an age when people communicate in 140 characters at a time, Owen communicates in 140 sentences at a time. You know, I can imagine a reader saying, well, that's amazing. You know, he's been reading Owen for 50 years. Maybe I should look. Or maybe the listener has looked at Owen and thought, oh my, I could never tackle this. Give us some encouragement. I'm more than ready to admit that Owen's Paragraph sentences can be a huge obstacle to people today. There are some abridgments of Owen which make things easier, but perhaps we ought to explain him a little bit. Now and again, not that our ministry should consist of quotes and expositions of quotes, but in the context of a Sunday school class or a Bible study and so on, we can perhaps educate people so that they can make progress themselves. But these abridgments do help. And it's not as if you have to sit down and plow through the whole thing all at once. Owen didn't write this stuff all at once. He wrote it over time, and so there's no reason why you can't read it a little bit. I have a friend from western Nebraska, and he always says, a little bit at the time, and maybe that's a way to read Owen, too. Yes, and meditate on the little bit at a time. Turn it over and think about it, and let questions be formulated in your mind in the light of it, or stimuli for further thinking and exploration, so that there's a very real interaction. It's not just reading words, it's thinking about what is written, reflecting on what's written, and making it one's own through these processes. How can the believer be encouraged that, however little it may seem, the Holy Spirit really is at work in him and is sanctifying, even though day by day one is confessing one's sins and seeing some of the same struggles again and again, leave us with some encouraging word that sanctification really is happening. God has promised it, and he is true, and he will not prove false to his word. Paul says, the God of peace shall sanctify you wholly. Therefore, just as we believe him for other things, we are to believe him in this. And we believe him about other things in spite of contrary appearances. So we're to believe him about this in spite of contrary appearances within. Coupled with that, the perseverance of the saints is to be traced to the faithfulness of God, the atoning work of Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We continue not by our own reason or effort, just as we were not saved by our own reason or effort, or merit or might. The perseverance of the saints, then, is an encouragement to us uh, that something is ongoing in us, in spite of the difficulty that we have at times to see evidence of it, to continue to strive to obey and look for cleansing and pardon when we fail is an indication of God's internal work within us. But I grant you, there are times when it's much easier to see this in others than it is to see it in oneself. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.